0: You're listening to the Redemption Church podcast with Pastor Daniel Williams as we go through a series called God Redeems, a study through the book of Exodus. We've been in a section in Exodus where God is freeing his people, Israel, from uh, Egypt uh, that's where we sort of find ourselves tonight. Last week, we actually studied about the Passover. Pastor Pilgrim did a great job with that. And tonight, we're going to actually see the result of people leaving Egypt. Egypt is the sense of the world. We know that we're looking through uh, Exodus with a gospel lens, knowing that Jesus is our lamb, uh, The, the uh, our um, great substitute and through the gospel to be like, okay, how do we interpret this and what are these types and pictures of and And uh, we know that the gospel gives us this great exodus that Jesus set us free, that he wants to actually set us free from the bondage of sin and all these beautiful pictures. And so I'm really excited about the the Seder meal and we're specifically uh, looking at how this passage points us to Christ. I hope that you know that, whether we're teaching Old Testament, New Testament, all scripture, Jesus said, points to Jesus. And this is actually an act of worship. What we're doing right now, engaging our minds and hearing from the Lord and studying and taking the time and saying, okay, what does this mean? What does that mean? And God, through the power of his word, is able to speak to us and minister to us. And so we've been learning a lot, specifically about the mighty hand of God and how powerful he is, and he is powerful like we testified tonight, how uh, he's able to heal, but he's also powerful throughout the generations, and he's a faithful God, and we see that even through this story of how God uh, was demonstrating to the land of Egypt and the people of Egypt, Israel, and everyone that would listen, that he is God, and there was no one like him. He is the great I am Yahweh, the Lord, and this Egypt and the culture, they were worshiping many gods, many false gods, deities, and he proved himself to be real. You see, God was judging the nation of uh, of Egypt uh, for their sin against God. They were worshiping false gods, and in that they had false practices, ideologies, and really he was attacking their pride through the 10 plagues. And we saw Pharaoh and how he would attack the pride of Pharaoh and actually represented the people and the ideologies. And Exodus 12, um, 12 last week talks about how God executed this judgment against even the false gods of the day. And this was the moment that Israel would be set free because God actually proved his mighty hand in judgment in that time. And so in, in chapter 12, the beginning of chapter 12, we looked at last week, um, sort of when there was a final judgment, it was coming to a climax and the angel of the Lord passed over uh, the people uh, and there was a great price, a high price of freedom. God poured out his judgment on this 10th plague in the land and the people and it cultivated, uh, culminated in really the firstborn being killed. And in Exodus chapter 11, verse 6, it actually tells us that this was a great time of weeping, of sadness. Um, dealing with sin is hard. And judgment of sin is hard. The Bible talks about how sin leads to death. And God in his righteousness judged the land And verse 6 tells us it was weeping like never before and never again. And so we deal with this reality that God is the true judge against everyone. And he'll make every wrong right. And when we sin, we actually don't just sin against one another, which damages us in relationships, but we also sin against God. And so it says that from the king's um, son to the slave's firstborn who didn't repent and listen to God died. God, in his great mercy though had a way out of this judgment as these plagues were coming to frequently and more and more. He would give warnings so people can actually repent. And those people that listen to God in his word actually listen to his instruction, pushed, put, killed a lamb and put the blood over a post and God passed over, hence the name Passover. And what we see as we're going through the book of Exodus is this is a picture of our redemption story. Not just Israel and God's people, but all God's people of how God works. There's sort of a couple of... Uh, ways that this works. We looked at the first 10 chapters or so specifically about Moses and how God redeemed him, gave him purpose, called him out, all those things. Now we're seeing that same process and cycle with the nation of Israel. And we're going to see God work in supernatural ways of the story of redemption. And this Passover meal, what I'm excited about is for us to see Christ because we know in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, it says, for indeed Christ our Passover was a sacrifice, uh, was sacrificed for us. We know that when Jesus came on the scene, John the Baptist cried out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes the sins of the world. So Jesus became our sacrifice, our atonement. And there's this great sign of redemption throughout this book. Again, Pilgrim did a great job. Pastor Robin's going to touch on this again. But I think it's important for our study because tonight we find ourselves of the consequences of this or maybe the rewards of this. Because in these great judgments... God dealing with sin, you also see God's great love and mercy. And that's really what's going to happen in the second coming. There is a, going to be a judgment, and there will be dealing with sin, but you always see the love of God, the mercy of God. And you see these things happen at the same time, even with our redemption. There are people that have been saved by grace, by His mercy, that actually have experienced this. And God is alive and well, and He di- will deal with these things accordingly. And Jesus becomes our full atonement. And in the picture of Jesus is where we actually see the heart of the Father because he loved us. He sent Jesus to deal with judgment of sin, but also to make a way for mercy. I love how the prophet Isaiah says this. In Isaiah 53, 5, he says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And so this is pertinent for our study because we find ourselves now The people of God are going to be free. They're going to be taken from one day they were slaves and now they're going to be set free and sent off. And now we're going to talk about the leading and how God's going to lead them, give them purpose. Just like for us, when God sets us free, he doesn't just set us free from sin, but he sets us for something for a great grand and purpose and leads us by his spirit as well. And so you see this pattern going forth and and this great uh, cycle of redemption. And so Let's pick up our study in Exodus chapter 12, verse 33, and we'll go actually through 13 through 16. I know it's a lot to cover, and we have covered a lot of these things so much, Um, so there will be some things that I won't um, go as deep into, um, but I do think that it is important for us to just continue to be faithful to God's Word and read every single line and study it, you know thought by thought, precept by precept, and hear what the Lord has for us. So let me just pray again real quick and ask the Lord to speak to us. Lord, we thank you so much that we can come to a place in context where uh, we just see your goodness and your faithfulness again. Lord, I know that everyone listening here, you have a plan and a purpose for their life. I pray that you would comfort them, encourage them, strengthen them, build their faith, help them to see you, Jesus, through this exodus. Lord, not just the redemption story that was found or 3,000 years ago, but even now, God, that you are working and active and alive, and you give redemption today. And so we just pray, Lord, that you would speak, that you would minister. We thank you, God, for the power of your word. You're so faithful to your promises. Help us to see that tonight, Lord. We love you and we bless you, and we just are so grateful that you're here in our midst with us. We ask all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's start the first three verses. Exodus 33, we'll go to 36. And we'll find sort of the context of where we jump in. This is right after the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn, where Pharaoh's saying, get out. And then in verse 33, it says, The Egyptians now were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. Send the Israelites out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks before it was leavened um, on their shoulders, and the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. Remember, Egypt, uh, Moses warned the people that this actually would happen, and when it did happen, to do something specific: ask people for some some uh, jewelry, some silver, gold, clothes, these type of things. It must have been crazy for them to hear this a few chapters ago, but now they're experiencing it. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they ask. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Let's stop there and let's just sort of get context of what's happening. And the first thing I want you to see as we go through this exodus and this point in history and this story is this. There is a clear victory that God has won. It's just obviously and super clear. Let me sort of explain it to you if we can hop our minds back in the situations. The Egyptians wanted the Israelites to leave. They wanted them gone. They said, Lead the land quickly, lest we die also. They finally realized in that land, not only Pharaoh, not only the Egyptians, that Yahweh was the true and living God and greater than any other false God that they had worshipped. And they did not like the consequences of opposing him. The Bible said God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. In their pride, they got their right place. And now they're saying, be gone get out of here. They're wanting Israel to be released. So much so, it says the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out. They gave in and they gave up. They wanted these people out of their lives and gone. So much so, and it was so quick, the, Moses writes that it took they took their bread before it was leavened or had yeast or rose. It was that quick. One day, they were slaves. The next very day, the people were sent out to be free. The day before, Israel were slaves, but now they're being released suddenly and quickly. Why? Because God, through these plagues and judgment, had proved that He was victorious and that He was God. He proved to be God, and they suffered boldly because of that opposition. It then says that the people were ready to walk in victory. And so they listened to Moses' words because he had prophesied the promises of God that they would be released and they did something just sounds crazy. They asked these people, well, if we're going to leave, give me all your stuff. Give me some valuables. And in verse 36, it actually says they plundered the Egyptians. It was like, checkmate, I'm done. It's over. God is victorious. He is strong. Now this victorious triumph points us, we know, through the gospel of what Jesus, the Lamb of God, would do in our redemption. That, That it's a very obvious thing that Jesus not only died on the cross, but rose again. And when we listen to his word, we can live in blessing and victoriously and have the enemy under our foot and not actually give in to the lies of the enemy. The Bible says he slaves us from lies our darkness into being slaves of righteousness. And we walk victoriously in our purity and our promises of God, living towards him. Colossians 2.15 tells it this way. For us, you and I, Christians, followers of Jesus, says that he, Jesus, Disarm the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So because of the work that Jesus did on the cross, we sort of have the same picture and the same victory, the same excitement. When you put your faith in Jesus, it's not like a try hard or do better. You were spiritually dead and now you are spiritually alive. It's a quick, sudden thing. And although the sanctification, the process of us glorifying God with our lives and us being holy and and walking away from sin is a long process that takes our entire life, there is a clear victory for all those that call upon the name of the Lord. They shall be saved. And it has been prophesied, promised, and it is guaranteed by this Holy Spirit that when you call upon God, you can have victory and the hope of His Spirit living inside of you. If Jesus said... you will have eternal life now. Eternal life is to know the Son. And so we need to have some confidence in our story to say, okay, God worked like this, and he's able to empower us to plunder our enemies, to have us walk in righteousness, to live out our trust in him. I like what one commentator said. He says, We have a king who uh, vacated a grave and gave gifts to men, Ephesians 4. And he gives us the spoils of his ultimate victory. These slaves, these Israelites, these Jews were helpless. And you see throughout the plagues, they really didn't do very much to help God. Actually, sometimes they hindered it because they complained against Moses. They were stubborn people too. But it was God that brought salvation. And it's like us. We don't really do very much to help God out in salvation. He does all that work. He's already sent the Son, but man, in his grace and his goodness, by his grace, we're able to walk in victory because of what Christ has done, our Passover lamb. What a beautiful picture that is. Or how the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 1 3 All spiritual blessings are found in Jesus. Have you clung to him? Are you living in victory? Do you know the promises of God to claim so when you are in a situation, Even next this week, you may not know you're going to be in this situation, but you can cling to God's word and you can claim that promise for your life. And these people were in a situation where their whole paradigm shifted. And because they knew God's word, the word that Moses spoke, the prophet Moses spoke to them, they claimed that promise and now they are living in victory with Christ. We need to be able to live in victory with them like them as well. And so... Now, verse 37 and 42 teach us that we can trust in God's word as he delivers his people according to his promises. As he delivers his people according to his promise, everything that we're going to read and have read and get into this exodus, it was something that God already declared to the people and to us as we've studied. Because if we're going to walk in victory and know God's word, he wants to give us confidence in his word that we could trust him, that he's faithful. And so, verse 37 through 42, we see him sort of do this. It says this: And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sakoth, Sakoth about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. So, imagine it's a lot of people. Some scholars say two to three million people. Just now be like, okay, go ahead. I mean, you guys know our small church. It's hard enough to like have a potluck organized. Could you imagine that many people? This is crazy. Okay, and so it says, a mixed multitude also went up with them, very much livestock, both flocks and herds, and they baked unleavened cakes because is a sudden thing of dough that they had brought out of Egypt for it was not leavened or had yeast in it because they, they were thrusted out Of Egypt And could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. But God knew in his perfect timing, verse 40, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years on that very day, all the host of heaven went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord. Reminded, he who began a good work is able to complete it in you by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Let's pause there and break that down a little bit. The Israelites were now on this journey from Ramses to uh, Sokoth, which literally means or translated into shelters. They're literally going from slavery to security. This is what the Bible is trying to translate, trying to express. It was going to be a new way of living. This is why God would later go tell Moses to go up to Mount Sinai and give the people the law, the Levitical law, 613 laws, to have them govern in the civilization because now they're being drawn out as a nation. And it was exciting, but I'm sure it was a little scary as well. All ventures of faith really are. Because even though that this was an act of faith, they're being set free, now they had to go to a journey to a new place. And this would require faith, just like it requires you and I faith to go to new places that God wants us to go. You see, the text in verse 37, it says that there was about 600,000 men on foot. And again, like I said, that says besides women and children, scholars say that two to three million people could have been a little bit more, a little less, but nonetheless, it was a lot of people that we're just going to need to be organized leaders they were just going imagine how much code you need to build out a city and all the plans and get the permits and all this different stuff because there's a process to make it easier now god just like go and you're like okay okay this is sort of cool because we're not slaves But it's a little scary because it's unknown because even though I was a slave and even though I was in sin and doing all this different stuff, at least I was familiar with me. Now I'm going into a new place, a journey with the Lord, and it's a little hard because they're gonna see that the Holy Spirit, God himself is gonna have to guide these people through a fire, through a cloud because it takes trust. And so they're getting thrusted into this trust journey, this faith journey. It wouldn't be easy at times, but they had to trust God for his purposes and plan in this moment. And I just love thinking about God and his goodness in these scary moments in our lives when we just don't know the next step. I think that's for all of us because we're human, right? God knows everything we don't. But I love how the Lord throughout Scripture continues to tell people that are fearful, fear not, for I am with you. He doesn't rebuke or condemn people. He's like, oh, I understand you're weak, so I'm going to tell you and command you, trust me. I'll be with you in the process. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. You see, as we trust Jesus in our faith journey, it's both exciting and scary, but the Lord continually gives us his word to guide us and gives us comfort and mercy and allows his spirit to teach us and just says, man, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. Fear not, fear not, fear not. We need that over and over and over again. God continually needs to remind us as well in our faith journey, not just people in the Bible and not just these people of this time. And God gives them three reasons in particular to trust them in this text that we just read. I want for you to see particularly three promises that were fulfilled as the Israelites were getting out of Egypt. They were now being released. And the first thing is God promised that the people would be rich when they left the land. Did you know that? He said it before because the people expect it in Exodus. But actually, if you go back to the covenant of Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse 14, when God made a covenant with Abraham, he actually prophesied this. So this was even before the nation or, you know, Moses' clever plan. God told Moses, I will bring judgment On the nation that they serve. Who did the nation of Israel serve? The Egyptians. God brought judgment on them. It was prophesied. He was patient because they were there for a long time, 400 years. They still didn't repent. But yet, in God's mercy, he's slow to anger, but there was judgment. And he said, after that judgment, I will release them. And afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. With great possessions. The Israelites did come out, the Bible says, with great plunder. And God was trying to teach them, you can trust me. I'm a a person of my word. Because they were going to have to still trust God in this new venture of faith. For he gave the people great favor in the sight of the Egyptians and told these people, this is crazy. He told them to ask their enemies, give me your stuff. Just think about that and then they did it. They did it. You know, sometimes I think about God's word, about he literally says, like, he forgives all of my sin, like all of them, past, present, future, like east to west, and it's like, this doesn't even make sense. This is crazy. How can this all happen? But it's true. Every promise that God has given us in his word, even sometimes when we can't wrap our minds around, it's true. And this has much just been a crazy thing. Not only will these people be slaves, they're going to be set free, and now they're going to have riches. Yep, happened just like God promised. Because God wanted them to know, I'm worth trusting. Let's go on this adventure together. You know, the second thing God promised through this exodus of the people, that they would be a multiplying nation. You see, if you go to Genesis 12.12, 12, the covenant with Abraham, God told Abraham, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. In this moment, from one day to the next, God literally draws out a nation, the Israelites. Now, let's not forget the practicality of this. Israel was a person. His name was Jacob. He had 12 sons. God, he wrestled with God. God changed his name to Israel, whose family moved to Egypt. And we read in Exodus chapter 1, verse 5, there was only 70 people at the time they moved to Egypt. So, in all actuality, could be maybe a big family, but it's not really a nation. Even after generations of this promise. But the Bible also says in that chapter that God gave favor to the Israelites And that God multiplied them and made them great. And now instead of a family of 70, there are 600,000 men plus women and children. And God did that. The Bible says God did that. And they need to know that God did that because they need to keep on trusting God to guide them into the nation that they will become. The third thing from this drawn out, this exodus of what they're experiencing God promised that nations would be blessed through them, through the seed of Abraham. And if you notice in verse 38, it tells us that Israel left the land as slaves and they were being set free, but there was a mixed multitude as well with them. They also went with them, meaning there were Israelites, but then there were also other people, even Egyptians that went with them because you remember God gave mercy to everyone in the land and said, I am the true and living God. Hey, if you don't want to suffer this plague, take all your animals in. Don't be out in the field this day. I'm a God of mercy. I'm going to warn you. And he warned the Egyptians and the Israelites to even do some of the same things because he loves the nations. And so a mixed multitude now is leaving with them because they had listened and trusted in the Lord. They were becoming a blessing to the nations and finding salvation through Yahweh, the Lord. These non-Jewish people saw the signs of God, believed in his word and followed him and now are being blessed. And remember throughout these judgments, God wanted to do this to show who he was, not because he is a killjoy, because he wanted to give joy. And now people are experiencing the blessings of God. One commentator said this, In Exodus we see the beginning of the fulfillment of this promise, that the nations would be blessed through the coming Christ. Galatians 3.6 By faith in Christ the nations are made sons of Abraham. Galatians three. through God was creating a nation, blessing the nations, this mixed multitude, as they left, and all of these things, and the way that they left was very important to the Israelites at this time. Why? Because they still had to trust God. It's not over for them. You know, you can have great victory in in life. God could do a powerful thing in your life, and then you know what the crazy thing is? The next day, you still got to trust Him. And it lasts for a little bit, like trusting God, you know. But then there's like a new challenge. Because the Bible says we go from faith to faith. And even us trusting God in this situation, when we grow in our faith, maybe if a year later, that actually doesn't take that much trust because you've seen God do that in your life. So then he'll bring you in a new situation. And the Bible says we go from glory to glory, meaning we need to give glory to God. And we need to seek his presence continually because we need to trust him. And so even though God work and will work, and this is a key factor, we're going to see that God's going to want us to make these things a memorial so they would remember, we need to understand that God is going to continue to move us out and we have to live our lives based on the promises of God. And it will be hard. Because in this text, it says something crazy. Verse 40 says the Israelites were in Egypt for 430 years, but God delivered them. I mean, that's awesome, but none of us will live to 430 years, pretty much guaranteed. This was a long time. And what this is trying to describe to us is God has a perfect time. We often get discouraged because we know the word of God is true and the promises are good and we're believing in them, but why have they got to take so long? Why do I have to take five years? Why does that have to take 50 years? Or why do I have to do this? Or like, I want things now and not later. This had been 430 years and God fulfilled his word. As we go deep inside, we know because he's giving mercies to the other nations, even before they go into the promised land and actually deal with those nations. He gave mercy to Egypt. So the people of God had to suffer. God has a perfect time in these things and the Israelites had to wait for the promises of God. Did you know in your life you're going to have to wait for the promises of God to be fulfilled? And it will be frustrating. It will be hard. But God gives us things, even in our own lives, to look back and say, you know what, though? He is true. He has worked, and he will work again. And now, fruition, fruit, it's come to pass. It just reminded me, thinking of the gospel, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4-5. through There have been so many prophecies about the Messiah coming, Jesus coming. But Galatians says, but when the fullness of time had come, when the right time had come, when it was according to God's perfect plan, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoptions as sons. I take that verse and I say, man, I could believe God then. Because right now I'm struggling and I have visions and I have promises and I have all these different things. But God, the greatest miracle and the greatest act he did is redeem my soul. Sort of like when you question God if he loves you and there is mercy. 1 John says he manifested his love by sending his son to die on the cross for your sin, to be your propitiation, your full atonement. He's already expressed that so you don't need to question him. And I don't need to question God's word even if it doesn't part of my plan. That's why I align my life in prayer and say, your will be done on earth as in heaven, not mine. I need to remember that. These people need to remember that. I think we all need to remember the faithfulness of God, the promises of God. God wants us to be reminded that he is trustworthy and that he is faithful, amen? He's faithful, he's trustworthy. So here's a kicker, it's like a repeat. You know what God does now? He gives them some memorials. Things that they would remember because we as human beings forget. Peter was like, hey, I know I wrote you a book, but I'm going to write you a second one. And I know it's going to say some of the same thing. But since I feel good, since I'm in the tent, I'm about to go to be with Jesus in heaven. I'm just going to keep on reminding you the same stuff that you already know. This is what now God is doing to his people as they're being freed. We see he institutes three important memorials to help this nation and even us today to remind us that he is good when we doubt that he is faithful, that you can trust him in your journey and you may not see the end. And what he does is he institutionalizes the Passover, the consecration of the firstborn and the feast of the unleavened bread. The Passover in verses 43 through 51, the concentration of uh, the firstborn verses one and two and then the end of that actually, uh, verses I think 10 and 16 and then the unleavened, the feast of the unleavened bread. We're not gonna go in depth tonight but I do want to go over them because these things will be brought up and obviously we've been talking about the Passover um, but there's other things that I want to bring up when it comes to this important memorial Uh, in verse 43 through 51 let's read it together so you imagine now the promises have been fulfilled they're going and hey the first thing I want you to do is just remember it make sure this is important just be reminded and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statue of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it, but every slave that is brought, out, uh, brought for, uh, bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation, that assembly of Israel, shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourner with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he uh, may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who are sojourners among you. Why? Because there was this mixed multitude. People are going to know and they're going to follow. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their host. Now, I know we've covered a lot. And if you get the message next week, if you go to the Passover, we're going to cover different angles. The one thing I want to highlight on this text is how the Passover meal was for the covenant community of God was for the covenant community of God. There's a main emphasis in these verses on circumcision. Now you know when we just read about Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, circumcision was a sign that God gave to Abraham as a belonging or sign to be a covenant of community uh, of this faith, uh, a community of faith that believed in this covenant that God gave, this promise, because God made a covenant with Abraham. And so God wanted the Israelites to be circumcised as an outward expression of, Are reminder of his covenant and they were circumcised they were to circumcise their sons trusting and believing that God's promises were true and they were his coveted people and then the big idea here in verse 47 is all the congregation of Israel shall keep it meaning they shall keep the Passover they should do this annually and be reminded that they are a part of God's covenant and they are a part of his people They were to do this to remind themselves that there is a good and great mighty God and he freed us. And as they partook in this meal, they would be reminded that God is faithful, that he is trustworthy, and they would cause them to live for him. But there were outsiders, foreigners, slaves, or whoever, this mixed multitude that couldn't partake unless, you notice, they had to get circumcised as well. Why? Because the meal was for Uh, more than just a food or a feast. It was a practice that they were to partake in to remind them of the saving blood of God, of how he uh, provided. Yes, it was a meal, and yes, there was symbolism, but there was something to partake in that and to say, man, I'm reminded that these things are true, and I partake, and I believe in Yahweh, and he is my God. God wanted the Passover to be an expression of faith and not just a religious practice. It was this thing that they could do. One commentator said this, outsiders and foreigners were not allowed to eat the meal, not because of their ethnic status or social status, but because of faith and practice status. Everyone was welcome to the table as long as they were circumcised, trusting and worshiping only in the living God. Now, obviously, I can do a whole another Bible study on this. I'm just giving you some cliff notes, all right? We see, though... This principle, even for us as believers, as Jesus instituted communion and get this illustration in picture. Because in communion, it's just a meal, but it's a meal for believers to partake in, to remember the work of Jesus that he did on the cross and how he shed his blood and was savior for us. It shouldn't just be a religious thing and something we do, and you should not partake in communion if you are not a believer, circumcised or cleansed of the heart. You should be born again, trusting in God. And it's more than just a simple, uh, some juice and some cracker. You're partaking and celebrating the work that God has done, believing in his promises and being a part of the covenant community of God. And then what the Bible says that all are welcome to partake as long as they repent. And believe in Jesus. And you may hear me say, hey, here at Redemption Church, you may not be a Christian and even know God, but you can see and you can believe right now that all these Christians are coming and going to partake in communion, and you could become a Christian right now and take. You can actually enjoy and believe in the gospel and have your sins forgiven. And what we're doing when we come together for communion, we're remembering that God is our amazing Lamb of God, that He shed His blood and He is coming back again, that His word is true. And the Bible says don't take communion in an unworthy manner just because you want to be religious or to fit in. Or in this case, just to have a good meal. No, 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 no. We need to partake and be a part of this community. And so there's, Moses is making it very clear that you need to be circumcised. There will be people and outsiders if they are and they want to partake. They need to do these requirements and make sure. And we too need to make sure our hearts are cleansed, repenting to God and coming to the the bread and the juice, just understanding what it means, that it's more than just a meal. And so God wanted this nation to have this Passover meal annually to remind them of what's taking place. But he doesn't just do the Passover, institutionalizes that. Now the next thing we see is in verses one through two of chapter 13, this consecration of the firstborn. So this is something that's not an annual thing. This is a firstborn. Many times when we think of the firstborn or the firstborn dying, we're just thinking babies, but this is not so. This is not the case. This is a firstborn would just be the first son or someone that would come into your life that is the first. And so you would consecrate them unto the Lord. And um, let's read the verses and I want to explain this a little bit. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me, set them apart, all the firstborn. remember, Israel would be known as the firstborn of God. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. And again, we'll read it, but in verses 11 through 16, it also talks about this principle. But before we get into that, what does consecrate mean? It means to make or declare sacred. To make or declare sacred. To to dedicate formally to a divine purpose. God is saying, uh, I want the firstborn to be dedicated, to be declared that they belong to me. This was significant to do because of what the firstborns represented and their responsibility in the family at this time. The firstborn of the family represented the family Uh, the family in their honor and passing along the name, but they would also have the rights to distribute the inheritance and take care of the family if the father would suddenly, or the parents, the uh, hierarchy, the the family, the patriarch, would go away or something would happen. They would be responsible. They would be in charge. They would be the one that has to do these things. Uh, One scholar and writer, Tim Keller, he says, In ancient times, all the hopes and dreams of a man and a family rested on the firstborn rested on the firstborn and if you know scripture you know that that role of the firstborn was was a significant role that would bless the family that would honor the family name and it was a significant thing and god's saying i want that significant thing to now be dedicated and formally honored to me so people know that your family actually belongs to me so to consecrate a firstborn son of the family was literally you're formally dedicating and declaring your family truly belongs to God. My hope and my rest is not necessarily on the firstborn, but it's on God. And it says the firstborn, but also like not just the male, but also animals. Did you notice that? It's not only just the firstborn of the the person, but an animal. Why is this? Because in ancient days, we know animals represented wealth and finances and money. If you had a lot of goats, you had a lot of sheep, a lot of herds, that actually didn't have big bank accounts, they would actually have a lot of those things and it would be a great resource. So as an ancient family, if you had a lot of herd and you had a lot of children, you would be set in security and that would be your hope. You would never say this, but it sort of was. It was their resources. And God was saying, I want to be your greatest resource. I want you to consecrate your family and your hope and your, not putting the responsibility on your firstborn, but on me. And with all your finances and your herd, honoring them, and I want you to do it, trust me instead. So as you consecrate the firstborn of the beast, it was a formal declaration to declare that God was the provider, that he hoped, that he was the one that you trusted. He was your greatest resource. So God wanted the family to concentrate the firstborn. And notice this, it wasn't by sacrifice, it was by redemption. It wasn't that they would offer their son up to kill them, but actually just in prayer, and adoration, and that would be a firstborn that would be dedicated and you would teach that child what it means to follow God and to trust God as well. They were to redeem the firstborn son, an animal, by payment, giving us another great picture of redemption and substitute, substitutionary atonement. God wanted the people to be continually reminded through this consecration of the firstborn that he was their greatest resource. And so that wouldn't be an annual thing. That would be like when you have a firstborn animal or child. So imagine now you have a feast annually, and then you have these firstborn as You're growing in your faith. Now you're reminding of God, being reminded of God and His faithfulness again and publicly declaring, He is my greatest resource. I believe in Him. Practically speaking, He is my hope. And I was just thinking about, for us, obviously, These are for the Israelites, these feast festivals, all this stuff, but they give us a picture a little bit about the heart of God because he gives us certain principles today. I was thinking about tithing and honoring God with our finances. That's really what we do. We're honoring God, Proverbs 3 says, with our finances, our first fruits, trusting God that he is our greatest resource. Tithe means tenth. When you give a tenth to God or when you give an offering to God, you're saying, God, you are valuable. You're my greatest resource. And you're giving that as worship and offering, declaring and guarding your heart that he is your greatest resource. It's an amazing thing to live a generous life, to worship God with your finances, put him first, and to see the faithfulness of God in your life. And it would be an amazing thing for these people as they're starting off, as they just got all this plunder, to God, to continually be reminded in their life, you can trust God. You can trust God. And just imagine a whole community saying, no, we trust God. No, our family trusts God. Our family trusts God, and there's great strength in that. Just like there's been great strength, or Pastor Robin said, as we come together and we worship God, whether it be with our time, our finances, or honor. when we're honoring God and, and, and consecrating ourselves, our lives to the Lord, it's a great power. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, that our light would shine, that it would actually be in glory to God when we set ourselves apart as a living sacrifice to him. And so some of these principles are the same, although some of these practicalities aren't. Lastly, God wanted this nation to remember his faithfulness and power, not just through the Passover, not through just consecrating their firstborn, but through the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Verses 3 through 6. You guys still with me? I just 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 love going through the Bible. You're just lucky I didn't take like four weeks to do all this, all right? Because I could have. So sometimes I go too quick, sometimes I go too slow. It's a hard balance because I get excited about all of it. Verse 3, it says, Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt. Remember, 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 remember. It's a memorial. There's the institutions. They, God wants him, them and us to remember his faithfulness. And he says, So when you came out from Egypt out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place no leavened bread shall be eaten today in the month of abib uh, you are going out and when the lord brings you into the land of canaanites because they god wouldn't just bring them out of something he was bringing them into something this promised land the hittites the amorites the hivites and the jezebites which he swore to your fathers to give you because he's faithfully promised you a land flowing with milk and honey you shall keep this service in this month Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all of your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, because they would ask, Hey, Daddy, why is the bread not fluffy anymore? Well, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the, Lord, or that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. I love practicality. God is actually helping them and telling them and teaching them to train their children. For with a strong hand, the Lord was brought, uh, has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep his statue as its appointed time from year to year. Again, it's an annual thing. Now, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, and he would do that, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all the first open wounds and uh, womb and all the firstborn of the animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of the of donkey you shall redeem with the lamb, and if you will not redeem, it shall break its neck. Every firstborn of the man among your sons you shall redeem. And when it is time to come, your son asks you. Again, this is asking about the consecration of the firstborn, the animal, the, 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 this feast of unleavened bread. What does this mean? Why do we have these systems and these rules and these laws? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of the man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that, uh, that firstborn are first open of the, of the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be a mark on your head or front lids between your eyes. Remember, God was making a point, the difference between following him and false gods, and he's saying, if you follow me, you'll be redeemed, but if you don't, you'll be judged. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. All right, lastly, the feast of unleavened bread. Again, we looked at this feast last week as the Israelites had quickly rushed out of Egypt. Uh, They took unleavened bread with them because it was a sudden And God wanted them to keep this tradition, this ritual, by eating unleavened bread for seven days to teach their children. This was a great process or system to not only be reminded for them, but for their kids. Because God wants us as his followers, as his people, to make disciples. You know this, right? Right? You know that your faith is just not for you, that you've been called to pass that on to others, specifically starting with your family and burrowing out into our communities to share the love of God. And so God sets people up and says, hey, I'm going to put this in your whole community so that way it could be a continual reminder and that they could know, like I said, the kids would notice, uh, you know, daddy, mama, why are we eating this type of bread? Because if you don't have yeast or leaven, it wouldn't rise and they had to go quickly. So it'd be like more like eating a cracker. It was a natural way to disciple kids and to testify of God's great power. And notice in the text three times in verse 3, verse 14 and 16, it says, For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with a mighty or strong hand. This meal, this feast would cause them to remember that God delivered them from the bondage of the Egyptians with a mighty hand. That he's powerful. You guys know this just as much as I do. When God delays in his promises, you not only question his goodness, but sometimes you can question his power, can't you? Like, well, can God really do that? But on the scene, doesn't he say, well, all things are possible? Nothing is impossible with me? God wants to prove to you his faithfulness that he says something and it can happen and that he has a mighty hand to be able to do it. So he would remind them just as the Passover of God delivering them from bondage with a mighty hand, with his strength. God is able to deliver you. He is powerful. If he is delaying, it is not because he is weak. It's because he has a better plan and we need to trust in that plan. And so it's an important reminder that we would be responding to God's great grace with Purity and with a holy life. Because as you guys know, as you walk through scripture, leaven or yeast is often referred to in certain translations. It's an image of scripture of sin. It's hidden. It works silently and secretly. It spreads and it pollutes everywhere it goes. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8, the apostle Paul admonishes the local churches to purge out the sin from their midst and present themselves as unleavened loaf to the Lord. And so what God is doing here is he's giving them a picture of how they should respond to God's great and mighty hand of salvation. We are to respond to great God's great love, his shedding of his own blood, by living a life of repentance and pursuing holiness and walking in righteousness. Paul would say it's our reasonable act of worship, Romans 12. David Guzik said this, The purity of the feast of unleavened uh, bread followed upon the blood deliverance of the Passover. This illustrates the principle that we can only walk in purity before the Lord after the blood deliverance at the cross. When we become born again and God awakens our spirit, gives us his spirit, empowers us, he actually gives us commands still to follow him. And when we do these things of the flesh and try to obey, we're not able to do that. But because our sins are forgiven, God empowers us by the spirit and leads us, we're able to walk now in righteousness. Again, that idea we were slaves or bondage of sin, and now we can be slaves of righteousness, following in God, and we can choose that. And these people had to choose. I'm I'm gonna put away leaven. I'm gonna set myself apart to live a pure life, to continually uh, go to God and trust that he has a mighty hand for us. Peter would put it this way for us in Acts chapter three. I don't think I have it on the screen, but he would say, repent therefore, And turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send Christ appointed for you, Jesus. There is great power when we turn to God and trust Him. The Bible says there's refreshing times, times of refreshing. Now, notice in this feast, you had unleavened bread, and then you had a feast, it was a party. It was a celebration. It was times of refreshing. This needs to be said in our culture because so many people are walking in sin thinking that's going to give them joy. But the reality is when you live a pure and holy life, it will give you more joy than you ever know. God transforms your heart to the gospel and he actually allows you to walk in purity and obey him and have more fulfillment, more joy, more satisfaction in getting rid of sin from your life than actually embracing it. And so... I love what David Guzik goes on to say. He says, The time that began and ended with the feast, it was a party. A walk of purity in the Lord is a life filled with joy. And so God wanted all of these things, these consecrations the firstborn, the Passover, the Feast of unloving Bread, to be reminded of His great grace and His power of how He freed the people of God. And you know what? It's good for us as Christians to set time aside to remember God's grace, to say, you know what? God hasn't forsaken me. He is in my midst. He is working in my life. His word is true. He has a strong hand, and we should take significant times in our life to set aside, to get rid of sin, to give our offerings, consecrate ourselves, and to enjoy the presence of the person of Jesus. And I love what Jesus said. As often as you gather together, he instituted something for us as believers. Communion, to remember his goodness, to remember he, there's grace for us, to remember how he saved us with his mighty act and hand. And so when now we come together and we actually have these things called practices or spiritual disciplines where we give offerings and we admonish one another in God's word and we pray for one another and we do these things as response to what he has done. In our story, God has redeemed us. And the Bible says because of that, we should praise the Lord. We should go to God wholeheartedly and say, God, I want to remember. And it's okay to just keep on going back to the table. Going back and saying, I need you. I need you. I need you. And so let's do that now. Let's sing about the faithfulness of God. Let's close our service and communion another practice that Jesus told us to do. Again, this is for believers. And you know what? If you're not a believer today, you can become one. Jesus said, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved and he will cast no one out. And I would invite you, as Jesus invites all believers, to come to him. Follow him and you will have rest for your soul. The forgiveness of salvation. For Jesus did not just die, but he rose again three days later, proving that he is God and he could transform lives. And that's what we celebrate. Not just what he did in his goodness, but that he is coming back again. And when he comes back again, there will be great judgment, but there will be also great mercy. And for those that are beloved, believe in the, in the faith and become family of God, those that believe in Jesus. We can actually receive mercy right now. The Bible says, repent while you today, you have breath. Today is the day of salvation. And so we actually enjoy this moment, knowing how holy and mighty and righteous God is and saying, God, we don't, we don't live up. We're slaves. We can't save ourselves. But thank you, God, for your mighty hand and for your mercy. We praise you. We bless you. And we just enjoy his presence. And so let's do that now. As we partake in communion, as we sing and we think about the faithfulness of God, the elements of communion are on the, each side of the table. By faith, if you want to receive that, you take time to pray. You grab the elements, come bring it back to your seat, and we'll partake together knowing that we all need the cross, we all need God's grace, and we can all celebrate today. So Jesus, we thank you so much for your goodness, for your grace, that we can come and claim the promises of God, uh, found in, in your word, Lord, and, and find life. And as we close, we just, we just have a heart of praise, of posture, of thanksgiving, and we just say, bless your name. Uh, we just say, Lord, that we need you, that we are sinners saved by grace. Lord, that we fear and we need your presence. And we thank you, God, that we can ask for a fresh filling of your spirit, that we can come together as a community, as a church. And bring you glory and magnify you. We just pray, Lord, that as we take this time to repent, to turn to you, that you would bring great times of refreshing. Continue in this last moment, Lord, as we sing these songs, to just build our faith, to empower us with your spirit. And let us remember, Lord, that there is a great God on our side. And if you are with us and for us, who could be against us? For greater is you than us and of the world, Lord. We bless your name, we thank you, and we just love you, Jesus. May you be glorified as we just worship you now in adoration and response to who you are. It's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. This is Pastor Daniel Williams with Redemption Church. Thank you so much for listening to this message. You can subscribe to this podcast via iTunes, Google Play, or YouTube so you never miss a message. The mission of Redemption Church is to pursue and to proclaim Jesus, and we would love to have you partner with us. Feel free to share these messages with your family and friends. And also, if you'd like to donate to the ministry, go to RedemptionDB.com. God bless you.